Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. We have visitors here with us uh, coming in from the holidays and from out of state, and we're, we're thankful to have everyone here. It's the Lord's Day, and we're meeting here as Christians to worship our Lord, uh, worship Him according to the pattern that He has set forward in His Word, uh, worship Him in spirit and truth, and we worship Him because of the song we just sang, we, we worship him because he loves us. We'll start out with a scripture reading this morning and a prayer, and then we'll have some announcements toward the end of our service. So please turn in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12, we will read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah 12, verses 1 through 6. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I I will praise you, though you are angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day you will say, Praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. So let's pray together. O Lord, we seek to praise you this day. We praise you, Father, for your love for us. We praise you, Father, that, that uh, we can be called your children. We thank you, Father, for the salvation and the joy that we have in you. We're thankful, Father, that we can meet together as your people this day. And I pray, Father, that as we do so, we will worship you in spirit and in truth. We will worship you with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Number 619, take time to be holy. Take time to be holy, speak off with thy Lord. Abide in him always, and feed on his word. Make friends of God's children, help those who are weak. Forgetting in nothing, his blessings to seek. Take time to be holy, the world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like him thou shalt be. Thy friends and thy conduct His likeness shall see. Take time to be holy, let Him be thy guide, and run not before Him, whatever be tied. In joy or sorrow, still follow thy Lord. And looking to Jesus, still trust in his word. Take time to be holy, be calm in thy soul. Each thought and each motive beneath his control. Thus led by his spirit, 
to fountains of love. Thou soon shall be fitted for service above. This time we'll have our second prayer. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, this time that we may gather together as Christian brothers and sisters and worship you. Lord, help our hearts and our minds to be in the proper place. Help us to uh, encourage our brethren during this time also. And as we leave this, uh, this place, help us to be a light to the world and salt of the earth. Help us to be an example for all those that we come into contact with. Lord, as uh, many of us are going to be traveling this week due to the holiday season, help us to be safe. Lord, we thank you for those of us that are, are here with us that haven't been here in a while, those that have been sick. And Lord, we ask that you please be with those that are still suffering from illness. Help them. We thank you also for our leaders here at this congregation, the church, uh, of this church, the, the elders. Lord, please bless their, their families. Lord, we thank you for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Number 843, as the deer panteth for the water. <clears throat> As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. You alone are my strength, my shield, to you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. You're my friend, and you are my brother, even though you are a king. I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you, O Lord, may my spirit yield. You, O Lord, are my heart's desire, and I long to worship Thee. I want you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver and the apple of my eye. You alone are my strength, my shield, to you May my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship Thee. <clears throat> to prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper this morning, we'll sing number 12. <clears throat> number 12, we're going to sing the first five verses, and then we'll sing the chorus. First five verses followed by the chorus. <clears throat> Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? 
Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in. When Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But drops of grief can now repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. gather around the table this morning, I'd like for us to remember the words of the prophet of Isaiah in chapter 53, verses 3 through 7. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let us pray. Most Holy Father, we come to you at this time, Father, as we gather around this table to remember your Son, to remember the awfulness that he had to endure physically while he was here in the crucifixion. Father, we pray that we might remember the words of the prophet of Isaiah about our Lord and Savior, how all the sin of the world was laid upon him, Father, and how he was willing to bear that. Father, sometimes we find it hard to bear our own sins as we think about our own lives, but he bore all sin. We pray that we might remember him, that you might bless this bread that represents his body as we partake. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you would pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we are so honored and grateful for the invitation we have each Lord's Day to come before your table. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for Christ and his blood that he shed so that we might have hope of eternal life with you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help each and every one of us to clear the things of this world from our mind, to focus on what Christ suffered, the blood that he shed, the sins that he took, the grace and mercy that he showed for each of us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that each who are about to partake might do so in a manner that's pleasing to you, that they might examine themselves as we know your word tells us to do. We pray that all would partake in a manner pleasing to you. In Christ's holy name, amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for the day that you've given us, this day that we can come together as a family and worship you. 
God, how awesome and powerful you are and how worthy of that worship you are. God, we thank you so much for the blessings you've given us. We understand and we know that you've given us all of the spiritual and physical blessings that we have. God, help us to never take for granted the things that you've given us. Help us to never take for granted the the jobs we have and the financial income that we are so blessed with and the things that you've given us throughout the week. God, help us now as we prepare to give back everything that you've given us this past week and the portion of it. Help us to do so cheerfully because, God, we understand that you love a cheerful giver. God, again, I pray that you be with these funds, be with the elders that oversee them. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. For the scripture reading this morning, we'll sing number 690, There's a Lamb Beyond the River. If you would, please stand for this song and remain standing for the scripture reading that follows. 690. There's a land beyond the river that we call the sweet forever, and we only reach that shore by face decree. One by one we'll gain the portals there to dwell with the immortals when they ring those golden bells for you and me. Don't you hear the bells are ringing? Don't you hear the angels singing? Tis the glory, hallelujah, jubilee. In that far off sweet forever, just beyond the shining river, when they ring those golden bells for you and me, we shall know no sin nor sorrow in that haven of tomorrow, when our bark shall sail beyond the silver sea. We shall wholly know the blessing of our Father's sweet caressing when they ring those golden bells for you and me. Don't you hear the bells are ringing? Don't you hear the angels singing? Tis the glory, hallelujah, jubilee. In that far off sweet forever, just beyond the shining river, when they ring those golden bells for you and me. When our days shall know their number, when in death we sweetly slumber, when the King commands the Spirit to be free. Nevermore with anguish laden We shall reach that lovely Aden When they ring those golden bells For you and me Don't you hear the bells are ringing Don't you hear the angels singing Tis the glory, hallelujah, jubilee in that far off sweet forever, just beyond the shining river, when they ring those gold.
golden bells for you and me. And if you'll focus your attention on verses 24 and 25, 24 and 25, then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the city and that which grew upon the ground. Let me see it, please. It's good to see each of you here this morning. You never know, these Sundays, as I mentioned in Bible class, just exactly uh, what these holiday weekends are going to bring. And several of our own are out and about, but we do find that several have come our way. And so we're grateful for your presence today. Good to see uh, those who have been away from Westside uh, back visiting with us today. Good to see Jerry and Cassie and their boys with us today. And it's good to see Sister Etta. I know that Sister Etta snuck in just for a minute last Sunday. And uh, we want to continue to remember uh, Sister Etta and her family in our prayers. Uh, she lost a nephew of hers this last week, and uh, his funeral services were yesterday. And we want to continue to pray for the Wright family and for Sister Etta. We miss her, uh, but it's good to see her face this morning. Again, many of our own uh, are out and about, so we do want to continue to keep them in prayer. Appreciate Brother Jim and him reading for us a moment ago from the book of Genesis. You remember that God decided he would overthrow and cast down the cities of the plain, including the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Before he did that, he came to Abraham and decided he would tell Abraham exactly what he was going to do. And for a moment, I want you to go back to Genesis and look in chapter 19. And you notice in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 25 that Abraham is going to ask a question. God has told him what he is about to do, that he is going to overthrow the cities of the plain, including Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham has a question for God. In Genesis chapter 19 and verse 25, he asked the question, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And as Abraham poses this question to God, we need to understand what is going on in his mind, what he is thinking. We need to not question the motives of this particular question. We need to make sure that we understand that Abraham, it seems, is settled in his mind of the character of God. That is to say that he is not posing a question to God like, God, are, are you really not going to be fair about this? Is it okay for you to cast down the righteous with those who are wicked? And so then after he poses this question to God, he is going to start with 50 and he's going to work his way all the way down to 10. God, if you find 10 who are righteous in these cities, will you refrain from doing what you've just said you're going to do? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham poses a question, but he is settled in his mind. And what he's doing ultimately is making a statement. And he says, I know that you're going to do what is right. He is not asking, God, are you fair? Are you sure that this is what you want to do? What he's really saying is, God, I trust that what you're going to do is right. I trust that you are always, because of who you are, you are always going to do the right thing. Are you settled in that in your mind? I find that many of us at times in our lives, we think we are. We really want to be. We really do want to trust that everything that God does is right. But sometimes we have these questions come into our mind. Is he really fair? Is it okay to cast down the wicked with the righteous, the righteous with the wicked? Is it really fair? Is God really fair? Do I really trust him to do always what is right and what is fair? Abraham was settled. He knew that God was going to do what was right. And we need to be settled in our minds that God is always going to do what is right. What I want to do this morning is actually go over and do a study of Ezekiel chapter 18. Lord willing, we're actually going to finish this particular study tonight, though 
uh, they don't necessarily need to go uh, perfectly together. But I want you to look with me this morning in Ezekiel chapter 18, and we're going to go down through the first 20 verses. Now, as you turn in your Bibles over to Ezekiel chapter 18, I want to give us a little background information on Ezekiel. It's not a book that maybe you've spent a lot of time delving into this particular week, but I want you to know uh, a little bit of background information on the prophet Ezekiel. The first thing I want us to remember is that Ezekiel was carried from Jerusalem, from Judah, over into Babylonian captivity. But he did so in the second wave of captives. Now, you, you know your history, and you know that these captives were carried away into Babylon in three separate waves. And it wasn't until the third wave that Jerusalem ultimately was destroyed. I just want you to know that when Ezekiel was carried over into Babylon, Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed. So he is over in Babylon, and he is there with those who have been carried captive by Nebuchadnezzar's army into Babylonian captivity, and they are sitting over here in Babylon, and they're still thinking that there's no way that God is really going to destroy Jerusalem. They're sitting over here in Babylon, and they're thinking to themselves, I still don't think that God is really going to destroy the temple. And what they're doing is they're sitting over here in Babylon, many of them, questioning God's fairness. Is it fair for us to be here? Is God doing the right thing? I don't think it's fair that we're sitting over here in Babylonian captivity, that, that we've been carried away from our homes. I don't think it's fair that this has happened to us. And they're questioning God about it. And that's what we find going on here in Ezekiel. So understand, and you want to make note of this, the first 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel take place before Jerusalem is destroyed. And so for seven years or so, Ezekiel is having to converse with, with Jews who have come out about, from Jerusalem. He's conversing with them, and they are upset. They're really upset that they have been carried over into captivity and Ezekiel is having to tell them that, that this is righteous, that God is okay in doing this. And so he's spending the first 24 chapters talking about the doom that ultimately is going to overtake Jerusalem, that God is going to keep his word, and that they are going to be destroyed. That's just a little bit of background setting up chapter 18. You see, chapter 18 falls in those first 24 chapters, and so Jerusalem has not yet been destroyed, and they're questioning whether or not God really is fair. In Ezekiel 18, we get insight into God's character. And I want you to see it with me today because this is relevant for our lives. And we need to see this. Sometimes we can behave ourselves just exactly as they were in that day and time. And we need to be very careful that that does not take place. All right, so let's get into our study. I hit the button too many times. Here's an untrue proverb. Let's just get into chapter 18 and verse number 1. The Bible tells us that the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, what, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Here's a proverb that God's people are speaking over here in captivity. The proverb is, uh, Our fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Interesting proverb, isn't it? You eat anything sour in your life or anything sour lately? And you know when you eat something sour, it has a really <laughs> a great effect on your body. It can affect all of your body as you eat something sour, but really the effect is on your face. Right? It's on your face. And you eat something sour, and you immediately, one eye squints, and one eye stays open. Like you get that look on your face, and, and you know you start to get that pain down here in your neck. When you have something sour, and it does, it kind of sets your teeth on edge. If you eat something really, really sour, your teeth will actually hurt. You know the effect of eating something sour. It's all over your face. You know if, if somebody next to you is eating something sour by the look that's on their face. It has an effect. And so what the proverb is, our fathers ate the sour grapes, but we're having the effect. They're the ones who ate it, but we're the ones whose faces are all scrunched up. We're the ones who have the sore teeth. We're the ones who have that pain in our necks. We're feeling the effects of what our fathers have done. And so the proverb isn't hard to understand. God, we don't think this is fair at all. We think that we're sitting over here in captivity for something that we didn't do. We're sitting over here in captivity, uh, captivity for something that our fathers have done. 
And we don't think you're fair. We don't think this is right. So God comes to Ezekiel, and he says, I hear this. I hear what's going on, and I want you to know that I've had enough of it. That no longer is this proverb going to be spoken. I've had enough of this, and I want you to know. And so he, he offers this response. I hear this proverb. I want you to know that I don't agree with it. I don't like it. But that's what's going on. We don't think that we're being treated fair. And so God responds in verse number 3. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And so God offers the beginning of this response. We'll just stop there for a moment. You know, as a parent, and I remember I've said this as a parent, but I definitely heard this from my parents when I was growing up. I would bicker, and I would complain, and I would moan, and I would groan, and I would talk about the fact that I had not been treated fairly. And there were times when my parents would tell me to do something, and I wouldn't do it, and they would tell me again to do it, and I wouldn't do it. They would tell me again to do it, and I wouldn't do it. And they finally would say, that's enough. I'm done with this. I don't want to hear this anymore. I want you to do what I've told you to do, and I want you not to complain about it. I don't want to hear your moaning. I don't want to hear your groaning. I don't want to hear your excuses. I don't want to hear anything else about it. I want you to do it. I've had enough. And that's what we have here from God. You keep saying you're being treated unfairly, that you're undeserving of what's going on in your life, that this is somebody else's fault, and I am not to blame in any way. God says, I've had enough of that. And he offers, really for us, by way of summarizing these verses, two words that are very important for us to get. And the first one is the word relationship. Brethren and friends, what we need to understand in those times where we want to question God, we want to question his judgment, we want to question whether or not he's fair, there are two things that we need never to forget. And the first is this. God says, all souls are mine. Your soul belongs to me. You have value because your soul belongs to God, you see? All souls are mine. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse number 7, when death occurs, the Bible says that the dust will return to the earth from which it came, and, or from which it came, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. The Spirit will return to God. The soul will return to God who gave it. It goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he did. God gave us a soul. God provides us a way to have a relationship with him. And so he says, I want you to know that all souls ultimately are mine. And he says in that verse, verse number 4, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. Now, who did he leave out? Well, just ask yourself, if you think about being a father and correspondingly a mother, who did he leave out? You've got an audience here this morning, and it consists of fathers and it consists of mothers, doesn't it? Right? There are many who are, as we scan the crowd this morning, many of you are in a father or mother in that category. And all of us fit into the next category, right? All of us sitting here this morning fall into the category of being a son or a daughter, right? All of us. And so when God says, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the the soul of the Son, all souls, this is all inclusive, all of them belong to me. It's relationship. God says, all of you belong to me. And I know that. And he needs us to be settled in that. But here's the second word. Because all souls belong to me, because I want to have this relationship with you, I want you to know that that carries with it a responsibility on your part. The soul who sins shall die. I made you. You have value because you are created in my image. But you have a responsibility that comes with that. And your responsibility, my responsibility is that the soul who sins is going to die. And so he's given us this choice, right? This responsibility that we have with the soul that God has given us. You think I'm not being fair. I'm telling you. I know. 
I know about these two very important things. As I live, says the Lord, based in who I am, these two things are true. I desire to have a relationship with you. Your soul belongs to me, but that carries with it the responsibility of doing what I say. The soul who sins is going to die. He says, all right, let me just illustrate this for you in three ways. And before we're done today, what I want to do is look at these three ways that God illustrates these two major points, uh, relationship and responsibility. God says, I'll show you what fairness looks like. All right, let's just illustrate it. And he says, I I want you to get it. I want you to miss the point. So here's illustration number one, verses five through nine. Here's a righteous man. Verse five says, but if a man is just, it does what is lawful and right. If he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, and executed true judgment between man and man, If he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just, God says. He shall surely live, says the Lord. So here's illustration number one. God says, all right, I'm telling you, what you're saying about me is not right. All right, you're not being fair to me, and you're you're accusing me of not being fair. So here, here it is. Here's a man who decides he's going to be righteous. By my count, he lists there 16 different traits of this particular individual. And of those 16 traits, he says eight of them, this is what the man is doing. And eight of those, he says, this is what the man is refusing to do. This is what he's not doing. And you combine those things, and God says, this is a picture of somebody who is just. This is somebody who is obeying me. This is somebody who sees the responsibility that I have given him, and he is responding in obedience. Is it okay if that man lives? I mean, are are you okay with God saying that man is just? You say, boy, I sure hope that God looks at that man as just. Because it seems to me that he is doing what he needs to do. He is obeying God and doing all that God has asked him to do. And I want God to look at me the way that he's looking at this man, don't you? I'm not bowing down to idols. I'm not going up on the mountains to to worship idols. I'm trying to worship God the way that He wants me to worship Him. I'm trying to be compassionate and caring. I'm trying to look out for the needs of others. I'm trying to be benevolent. I'm trying to serve God and I'm trying to serve my fellow man. And God says, is it okay with you if this guy lives? And you say, boy, I sure hope so. Because I'm trying to do those same things. And what I want more than anything is for God to say what he said to those servants in Matthew chapter 25 in that great parable of the talents when he said to the five talents and the two-talent man, I want God to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I'm perfectly fine with God saying, yeah, this is a picture of somebody who's striving to be obedient. I'm okay with God declaring this one as just, though he is undeserving. Though he has sinned in his life, God is fair. He says, this this person is striving to be faithful to me, and it is right. It is fair of me to say that he's okay. He's going to live. In a spiritual sense, he's going to live. He's going to be okay. But what happens when this righteous man has a son, and the son turns out to be the polar opposite of his dad? What happens to that son? Well, that's illustration number two. Verse 10 says, If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does, not, does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife? If he has oppressed the poor and needy, he's robbed by violence. He has not restored the pledge. He's lifted his eyes to the idols and committed abomination. If he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? God says he shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Is that fair? I mean, if a righteous man has a son who is wicked, is the wicked son going to be declared righteous because his dad is righteous? 
No. You know, it's not fair. If a wicked son chooses not to be righteous, but chooses to be wicked, and yet the righteous man can live, do you think it's fair for the unrighteous to live also? Is God just going to be able to overlook his wickedness because his father was a good man? That's not fair, right? And so God is laying out his case. He's saying, I, I want you to get in your mind how this looks. Are you okay with the righteous man living? And everybody says, absolutely. And you have to be okay with the unrighteous man not being declared righteous. Okay, you have to be okay with that. He has a son who doesn't respect God. He is not caring. He's not compassionate. He is not benevolent. He doesn't care about his fellow man. He is not striving to do uh, what God wants him to do. And just because his father was a good man, God says, I'm not going to declare him to be good. Okay? He doesn't see the responsibility. He cares nothing about having a relationship with God and therefore sees none of the responsibility that comes with desiring to be in a right relationship with God. And God says, I am not going to be in a relationship with him if he chooses not to be in a relationship with me. Is that fair? I think we should say, yeah, that seems fair. It seems fair if the wicked one wants nothing to do with God then God would, would turn around and say, I'm not going to declare that one to be righteous. Now, this righteous man has a son who is wicked. And then the wicked man has a son. And so here's the grandson of the first man, okay? Here are your three illustrations. Here's the final one. Now we get to the grandson. And the Bible tells us in verse number 14, If, however, he, that is the wicked son, if he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done, and considers, but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor, and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments, walked in my statutes, he, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. A righteous man has a son who's wicked. God says, I'm not going to save that son just because his father was wicked, because his father was righteous. And then the wicked man has a son who decides he's going to be righteous. God says, I'm not going to destroy him because his father was wicked. You see? I think this is one of the most important words in all of this chapter. We find it for the first time in chapter 18 and verse 14. We'll find it again over in verse number 28. But it's the word considers. He considers. He thinks about his dad. He thinks about what his dad is doing. He thinks about the wickedness of his dad. The desire he does not have to be in a relationship with God. The, the righteous living that he has not shown in his life. And this is a man who is old enough to consider. We're not talking about a child. We're certainly not talking about a baby. But in chapter 18 and verse 14, we're talking about an individual who is old enough to consider. He's old enough to consider the ways of the Lord. He is old enough to be able to recognize this is the way that God would have me live and therefore I'm going to choose to live that way and I'm going to put aside what my father has done. We're talking about a, an individual old enough to do all of that. He says, I, I'm not going to go the way of my father. I'm going to turn my life around and I'm going to go the way of my grandfather. I'm going to go the way of the Lord. And so God says, I'm asking you, I, I've painted to you this scenario where you have a righteous man who has a wicked son, and then you have a wicked man who has a righteous son. And I'm asking you to be fair. What is fair? Who shall I save? And who is going to be lost? Who shall I say is in a right relationship with me? I provided the souls for all three. All three belong to me. But two see the responsibility to obey and one doesn't see that responsibility and chooses not to obey. What's fair? What shall God do? He's illustrating a point here. We need to get it. We need to understand it. 
I don't know why this isn't always proceeding when I hit the button. But you see, this young man is not condemned because his father was wicked. And so God reaches this conclusion. This is where I conclude as well. The conclusion is, in verse number 19, Yet you say, Why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. He repeats his words from verse number 4. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Oftentimes, when we turn to Ezekiel 18, those words sound familiar to to you, don't they? You read verse number 20. We don't look at the context generally, and this is a preacher talking now, because it's my fault. We don't often look at the context in which this is found. We just turn over there, and we read verse number 20, and we pull it out, and we use it to say things like, see, we don't inherit the sin of Adam, right? I'm responsible for my sin. I'm responsible for my actions. And that's a verse that certainly justifies that belief that we don't inherit somebody else's sin, that I'm not responsible for the sin of anybody else. You are responsible for your actions, and I am responsible for mine. But I want you to see the greater context, and I want you to know that in the beginning of this conversation, the beginning of this chapter, God has been accused of being not fair, and God is defending His righteous actions. He says, I'm giving you that choice. I want to be in a relationship with you, but that responsibility is on you. It's all about relationship and responsibility. And God is going to fairly judge us based on what we choose to do. The people in the days of Ezekiel were accusing God of not being fair. And I'm afraid there are too many in our world today that are doing exactly the same thing. And they're accusing God of not being fair. And what they're doing is not being fair themselves. And they're asking God to overlook wickedness. And they're asking God to overlook uh, sinful behavior. And God, will you please just go ahead and overlook that and save them? But God, this person's engaged in those activities and and you should uh, condemn them. Save some, condemn others. We need to understand that God is always going to do what's right. God is fair. We need to be settled in that. Now listen to me. What I'm about to say is very important. When you look at these three illustrations that, that are provided here in Ezekiel chapter 18, two, see a responsibility to be in a relationship with God. One has the same opportunity to be in that relationship, but is unwilling to accept the responsibility that comes with it. But none of those men who are described in Ezekiel 18 are deserving. None of those three has earned it. None of those three deserve to be in that relationship with God based on their own merits. All three of these individuals that are described as we go through the rest of the Bible, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, those who reach that age where they're able to consider, all are going to choose, all have gone astray. All of us of that age and sitting in this room this morning have gone aside. But you see, at some point, those of us who are Christians, we've, we've considered and we've come to the conclusion that based on the relationship that God provides me, I see a responsibility to respond in such a way that I will strive to be righteous, that I will strive to obey Him, that I will strive to worship, I will strive to serve, I will strive to do those things that are right and pleasing in His sight. This is a responsibility that we each need to see in ourselves. God is not going to judge me based on the righteousness of my parents. And He's not going to condemn me because of their wickedness. I'm going to stand before the Lord someday, and He's going to judge me based on what I choose to do. And the same is true for you. Consider that today. 
And it is not fair for us to leave Jesus out of this equation. You know, Paul would say, as you see on the screen behind me, in Philippians 2 and verse 12, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. I need to understand that. That God has provided me this way to have a relationship, but I need to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. But what has God what has Paul said just prior to verse number 12? You go back to your New Testament now in Philippians chapter 2, and you begin in verse number 5, and Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to talk about what Jesus gave up in coming down to this earth. He did not consider it robbery to be called equal with God. But he came in the form of a bondservant. He came in the appearance of a man. And coming into the appearance of a man as a bondservant, the Bible says in humility, he went to the cross. There's coming a day when every knee will bow before him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's verse number 11. And then he says in verse number 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but don't misunderstand or miss the order. Based on what Jesus Christ has done for you and your salvation, based on His leaving heaven above and coming down in the form of a servant, in the form of man, and going to the cross and dying for your sins, now, how are you going to respond? Now, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's all about relationship and responsibility. God says, because of what my son has done, you can have a relationship with me. You're not going to earn it. And you're never going to deserve it. But because of his precious blood, you can be one of mine. You can be one of my children. And you have a responsibility to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. My friend, God is fair. He is fair. He is always going to do what is right. He has given you an opportunity to be in a right relationship with Him. He's done everything He can do to be in a right relationship with you. Now, what are you going to do with that responsibility to respond? Are you going to choose to be righteous and live? Or are you going to choose to spurn His invitation and walk away and die? You have the responsibility. It's illustrated for us in this Old Testament passage, but still very relevant for us to study today. Consider, won't you, today where you stand with God. Consider where you are in that relationship, and consider today coming to the Lord by obeying Him, by doing what He says you must in order to be in that right relationship. What do you have to do? The Bible lays it out for us very clearly and very plainly. This morning, will you respond to the Lord's invitation, believing Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, willingness to repent of sin in your life, to confess His name as Lord before others, as the Son of God? Are you ready today to be immersed in the waters of baptism, to have your sins washed away? Don't spurn the invitation. It's extended. You're going to stand before God one day. Are you prepared? Consider that as we stand and sing.